You're listening to the Morphology Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Morphology Podcast. Hey, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast and give it a thumbs up if it's deserving. It sure helps me out a lot. Anyway, aka Murph here to share interviews about biking experiences from cyclists who have pedaled to places all over. Each week, we will get to know new people and explore new destinations to ride your bike. As you listen to these adventures, you may wonder, why haven't I done that yet? This week, meet Henry Gold. He is the founder and director of TDA Global Cycling, which is an adventure cycling tour company with some epic bucket list expeditions available. Many years ago, Henry had a crazy vision to create Tour d'Afrique, a test of mind, body, and bicycle. It was to be a bicycle race in Africa, which takes cyclists north to south, from the Pyramids of Giza to Cape Town. This dream became a reality in 2003, when 33 riders saddled up for the four-month expedition, Tour de Afrique still exists today as a popular tour, along with many other options for the cycling adventurer. Oh, and Henry tells this amazing story of how he came face-to-face with an angry elephant and lived to tell about it. Here's my interview with Henry. All right, well, on the podcast today, we have Henry Gold. Hey, Henry. Hi. And so I have done um, some research on you, Henry, and you are quite an inspiring person. You have done all kinds of world cycling adventures. Yes, I've had quite an eventful life, um, even before I started cycling. Um, And I say that because in a way, uh, uh, the company that I set up came as a result of some of my my other work. So... uh, Uh I have been very, very fortunate and, uh, and, and had very, very interesting uh, adventures in life, let's put it this way. Yeah, and you, you touched on it just now, but you founded a company, TDA Global Cycling, and that's one of the reasons you're on the podcast today, is you've been kind of expanding and um, adding tours, and I definitely want to get into that. First off, let me ask you where you live now and what the cycling culture is like. So I live in Toronto, Canada. Um, I've been here essentially uh, on and off now, 40 years plus, um, and um, it's it's the home base. And the cycling culture, well, um, it's not as good as, as some of the other Canadian cities, as for example, uh, Montreal or Vancouver. But it's evolving. It's been a slow process. Um, there been a lot of obstacles. Um, but yeah, they're adding bike lanes and, mm. and the culture is evolving. People like me are extremely impatient, um, <laughs> because, because I have been involved in the transportation and environmental issues for many, many years mm-hmm. beside, beside the company. So it's, it's very, you know, it's very difficult to, to see how slow these things, how slowly these things happen, but it's evolving. It is, it's like that where I live too, where you'll see it on paper, you know, a new trail's coming or a new uh, infrastructure that's going to be helpful for bicycles and pedestrians. And then you'll look at the date and they'll say, you know, in the next 10 years, we'll have this. And it's like, oh man, it's not what I was thinking. Yes, and, it, and and those 10 years can stretch. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah That's yeah. exactly the problem. Yeah. yeah that well, is the problem. 
Well, I know that you have cycled in many, many countries, and I'm sure we will get into Africa in a little bit here. But what have you noticed is the difference when you're in other countries? Or maybe you want to mention some of the countries that you've pedaled your bike. Well, you know, uh, by by definition, if you will, every country is different. Every culture is different. Mm-hmm. Every culture looks at cycling differently. And that's part of the beauty of traveling. You know, you discover new things. Um, so we all know uh, countries like Denmark and Holland and, you know, other Scandinavian countries are much more cycling-oriented. Um, Europe has gone quite cycling-oriented. Other places, you know, Africa has uh, has really very little had very little cycling, uh, um, partially because well, there was no infrastructure, and uh, for most people, even ha- having a bicycle was an expense they couldn't mm-hmm. afford, and certainly there was no subsidies or helping people to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, other countries are just so populated; it's, it's difficult for cycling. But in some way, it's even better. It, it is good for cycling because the traffic is not moving fast. And you're not intimidated, and you know you you can get on a bicycle. And there are local people. India, for example, have plenty of cycling. China used to be a cycling haven, you know. Mm-hmm. And many years ago, I and I already say many years ago. I think over 12 years ago or so, I wrote a piece here for a Canadian newspaper called "Kingdom of Bicycles No More." Um, and so, um, yeah, it's you know every country is different. We went, we did a amazing trip in Indonesia many years ago and it was an amazing trip because we had we were forced by nature of the traffic and narrow roads and and amazing um, um, just traffic that you couldn't move you were stuck for hours so we had we were forced essentially to go on, on narrow country abandoned mountainous road and mm. as a result we were so off the beaten road it was just an amazing trip it was probably one of my favorite um, because it had no bicycle culture whatsoever and because of the traffic and, and lack of infrastructure. So, mm. you know, it varies. Yeah, yeah. Is there a particular place that you would highly recommend people go with a bicycle? Ah, the key question. <laughs> I, don't have an I never have an answer for this because my answer usually say, you know, <clears throat> I get a kick out of getting on a bicycle, even in Toronto and going to areas that I haven't been to or I haven't been for a long time and and just discovering new things that uh, I find fascinating. Um, You you know, to me, getting on a a bicycle is is the act that gives me so much pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, Even even in bad weather where I don't feel like it and I feel, you know, why are you going to cycling? Why are you going to do this? And then... Two minutes later, I'm on a bicycle. I said, "Wow, I'm I'm so glad I pulled myself out of the <laughs> warm house." So, yeah. um, no, my recommendation to everybody is just 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 go out, just just do anywhere, anywhere. You're gonna you, you're gonna start feeling so much better. A few minutes of being on a bicycle, you're already gonna feel much better than you are sitting at home. Oh, for sure. I definitely agree with that. I was reading different things about you and it was way back in the 80s that you you know kind of started that feeling of having the company and getting bicycles for people where do you think your passion for bicycling comes from you know i'm a convert in many ways when i say convert i i grew up with a bicycle in eastern slovakia um but it was just you know as a child you go around and i lived in a small small place and, and visiting villages and nearby we were just cycling and I remember <clears throat> going to pick up 
mineral water, which was uh, five kilometers away from where I lived. And on a regular basis, we'd go and pick up, you know, natural spring. And mm-hmm. we would just go with six, seven, eight bottles and fill them up and come back. Um, so, yes, in that sense, I was I grew up with a bicycle. But as far as, uh, you know, you became an adult, I emigrated twice to different countries. Um, bicycle was not part of it. And uh, and then later on, when I did have a bicycle, it was mainly for commuting. I did live in 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 Banff, Canada, one uh, one mm. long summer, mm. and uh, and there I bought myself a bicycle, and there I would do you know day journeys kind of into the into the parks and and so on. But it wasn't you know it wasn't even much, I, I would hardly take any food with me. It was just kind of a few hours. That was the essence of it. And then I got interested in in. Um, in transportation issues, and, mm-hmm. and I was m- more interested in cycling as an alternative to pollution. I'm, I'm an engineer by training, and oh, okay. in fact, my first job was anti-pollution engineer. And so my interest in bicycle was it came from the fact that, uh, you know, this, this as compared to everything else, cycling is, is such a um, benign way of uh, for the environment. Um, compared to cars and, and buses and trains and certainly planes. And and so I was interested in, in bicycle as a transportation. And and in fact, that's what eventually led me to, to set up a company because I was actually working in Africa. I was running a, a non-for-profit organization, which, which I co-started with a, a friend of mine, a doctor. And uh, <clears throat> we were working in Africa, and I kept seeing this incredible weight people carried on their on their backs, and and uh, and the lack of, you know, if you produce something, you couldn't take it to the market more than what you could carry either on a horse or mm-hmm. uh, or, or on your back. And I said, you know, what Africa needed sort of a China in those days had bicycles, bicycles. India had those bicycles. I said, you know, and there were some of those bicycles, but by the time you, you get an Indian or Chinese bicycle, which would cost, I don't know, in India, 30 or $40, by the time you were, by the time you were selling it in Nairobi, it would be costing 200 US dollars. Oh, wow. You know, and, and, and who could afford those? So I said to myself, you know, there's got to be a solution here. Somebody's got to bring the price down. And uh, and I found that, <clears throat> in fact, someone approached me who wanted to work for my uh, organization, and, I, and he had an MBA. And I said, forget about working my organization. I have this another idea. Let's try to set up a factory in, in Nairobi to, to lower the prices of bicycles and, and to create an African bike. And um, and he liked the concept, and I was able to raise some money, so I sent him to Nairobi to do a feasibility study, and uh, the feasibility study looked promising, and we decided we're going to set up a company, we're going to do this. Mm. And the concept of tea, the Tour de Afrique bicycle was, one day we were struggling, how are we going to market We have no money, we have no backup, we have nothing. Um, so how are you going to market all this? And I, I said to him very simply, you know what? I have this crazy idea. We're going to set up a crazy bicycle race across Africa. I go to Cape Town. And and because it's going to be so crazy, because it's never been done, because it's going to be using our own bicycle, crazy, heavy bicycle, the media will love it. You know, they'll be <laughs> loved following it as we go through it. You know, I, 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 I thought of Bronson, you know, the UK guy who came up with all sorts of stunts market himself and his companies, Virgin Airlines and, and stuff. You, you, you know him, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I sort of said, I, I sort of uh, saw that kind of an image in front of me. We're going to do something very, very crazy. I mean, you're going to call it Tour d'Afrique, Cairo to Cape Town, you know, Tour de France, Tour d'Afrique. <laughs> and and that was the idea where, where setting up the company came from. 
my my colleague um, unfortunately got cold feet and um, and took a job with a consulting company and I was involved I was still running my my non-for-profit organization I was at that time also involved in um, producing documentary films about Africa and I had to make a choice I couldn't leave it well I had to make a choice what I'm going to do am I going to go to a completely new new venture called you know um, manufacturing bicycles or am I going to keep doing what I already was doing which was mm-hmm. hard enough in itself you know you start something from scratch boy mm-hmm. it takes um, and you have commitment to all sorts of people so I said you know let's put this aside I'm not gonna you know deal with this right now the manufacturing of bicycles um, but a few months later somebody uh, introduced me to this um, Canadian Dutch guy who was an avid cyclist a racer in fact and he just spent some time in Africa himself and and he loved the concept of a bicycle race across Africa he didn't want to get he was actually in cycling business already and he just didn't want to get into the manufacturing um, so we talked about it and I said you know and I and he convinced me I said okay let's do this to the Afrik it was in 1993 or 94 and I was still uh, I was still working you know on my other uh, projects uh, but then there was a terrible, terrible um, terrorist attack in, in Egypt. Yeah. Um, I think about 50 or 60 people were killed, tourists. And we, we sat down together and decided, you know, the timing is not right. You know, who's going to go? This was in, in, you know, some of those first big terrorist acts where the impact was so huge, we realized that Egypt for a year or two right. three is just yeah. not, not a go. So they put it aside and... and um, and then uh, that was it. Uh, for years, uh, he got into a serious, uh, very serious car accident, and I left my job and overseas for a few years. It was kind of back and forth. We would talk on the phone once a year or so. Um, but then in 2002, uh, I had another project, a competition with World Bank, which uh, failed because of 9/11, uh, meaning it, it was it, it just didn't happen because 9/11. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I called my, I called that fellow and I said, you know, uh, I'm 50. If I'm going to do some crazy stuff, it has to be now. <laughs> now is the time. Now or never. <laughs> right. Now or never. Right. If I recall correctly, he said, uh, let me get back to you in a day or two. And um, and he basically said, yes, let's do it. And that, I think that was about February 2000, February 2002 or uh, March. And by... Uh, by January, mid-January in 2003, we, we, myself, him, and another 31 cyclists and support staff, additional support staff, uh, we were standing in front of the pyramids and under the starting gate. Um, so that's how the company was set up. That's how it came. As I said, the the, the, the kind of the origin is kind of long-winded, and then I just became a convert. You know, meaning, boy, I just discovered that this is a, the, everything I was talking about in the past. It just started coming all together, including, by the way, trying to help Africa because the the, the whole concept of going to Africa was to bring people to experience Africa in a different way than most most people who come to Africa would. And I mean by that that most people who came to Africa would be either either going on safaris and staying in fancy lodges. Or, or uh, coming to work there, like myself, you know, where they were dealing with all the challenges in Africa, with the misery, the poverty, the hunger. Or they were businessmen who came to exploit Africa. You mm-hmm. know, there was really no other other way of experiencing Africa. Maybe if you went to uh, South Africa, there was, you know, there was much more of a tourism there. But 
Um, and Egypt, of course, had its own um, um, historical tourism. You know, there's plenty of that. But the rest of Africa was was an unknown territory, and I and I said, this is you know, cycling is is one of one different way of seeing and approach and seeing and experiencing Africa. And and um, and there was tremendous cynicism and skepticism. People didn't believe this was doable. People people that came on my on on our first trip. Uh, some of them were convinced they're going to die on this trip. Oh, wow. You know, they were just like the old type explorer who just said, I'm going to go for it, but I think I'm going to die here. Um, it, the perception of Africa was just so different. Even now it's still there, but certainly not to the extent. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, my friends, who, when I mentioned I'm doing this, they said, Henry, you flipped, you completely flipped. Um, this is crazy. It's not doable. It's, you don't know what you're taking on. You have no experience in any of this. And they were right. I had no experience in any of this. But what I did have experience was that I knew that Africa is not what people thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how it. That's essentially how it came about. So when you're talking about the Tour de Afrique, I hope I'm saying that right. Tour de Afrique. Yeah. Tour de Afrique. Okay. You have that dream of I'm going to ride my bike across Africa and I want other people to join me. I'm assuming at that point there was no bicycle routes. There was no like, of course you had a plan, but your dream became reality. And it's just mind blowing to think you did it. Yeah, you know, it was an adventure in a, in a almost in a kind of the... <laughs> 19th century sense where where you didn't know what you were getting yourself into. <laughs> um, it wasn't unknown in the sense that you know uh, there were local people who, who you know, on every section knew what's what's there, but nobody had the kind of a knowledge that would cover top to bottom. Mm-hmm. And certainly certain sections uh, were unknown uh, to foreigners for sure. There were zones that were really literally not open to foreigners. There were military military zones and. And, and political uh, issues, so they were banning foreigners from them, uh, etc. So we, um, when, when we announced it, I had no, um, I had no guarantee that we were actually even allowed to go through this. But what I did know, and this is the advantage that came in, you know, some of the most difficult places. I, I, I worked in those places, I, in those countries anyway, and uh, and I developed some local. Contacts and uh, and I thought in, in, in 2002 I thought the situation is changing and this is feasible. I think I can do it with a little luck and and the help of my connected friends. Mm-hmm. I could do this and and it worked out. It's exactly what worked out. You know anybody who has not who have not had that uh, uh, history in those countries would probably not been allowed to go through it. Mm-hmm. But because people knew me, because they realized what kind of support type of, of uh, aid I, I brought into the country they were not questions they were not questioning my motives and, and perhaps even they didn't understand what I was trying to do so <laughs> <that's better> <laughs> uh, and, and but as I said I managed to get the permits um, very easily frankly and I say very easily just because I contacted through internet I contacted my my old uh, friends if you will there and I said listen you may have heard me talking about this in the past I want to do this uh, can, you, can you help me get the permit and I think three or four of the difficult places I, I literally got a response saying I mean, don't worry about it we'll get it for you wow wow uh, 
and and I think that's the that's what made to really Africa happen. It's it's just literally that you know how you never know where, you know the the things you do how it can help you in the future. Sure. Well, um, we should mention the name of the company is TDA Global Cycling, and it's pretty simple to find online. It's just TDA globalcycling.com but can you go from you know that first expedition to now you are a full-fledged touring company you know again there was no original vision that that's what we were going to do um in fact i think it was almost in the last few days of, of the tour de Afrique when we were all, we were already in south africa and it, we were assured that unless you know something <laughs> crazy happens we we're going to make it I was cycling. I was a slow cyclist. I was always in the back, and there were three or four people hanging around with me because we were partially because we were slow by definition. <laughs> like me, I'm not a fast cyclist, but partially because we stopped and enjoyed ourselves and talked to the locals and, mm-hmm. and had more fun than people who were trying to go from point point A to point B very fast. So one of them at some point says, oh, "Henry, okay, we made it to South Africa. We made it. You know, we this. Uh, what's next?" And I just blurred out something out of my out of my mind. Uh, I said, "Well, obviously the next big trip is Silk Route. You know, nobody Silk Silk Route is you know legendary." And uh, and I I just said Silk Route, and and that sort of started think me thinking that uh, rather than just keep doing this, uh, both from a business sense, if this company is going to exist for a long time it, it needs to diversify mm-hmm. um but also because that's where my heart lies you know i i love going to new places and exploring i certainly love the way we did it on a bicycle i'm not a very good tourist but i'm i you know i go to places because i have to have some sort of a goal and and, and crossing a, a country on a bicycle is a goal <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and in that sense, uh, that gives me the motivation. I think a lot of people are like myself, and that's how it started. So uh, um, started thinking. We didn't do that. The next trip was not so cool. The next trip was actually a trip in in Europe. From um, we did a trip from Paris to Istanbul, which is again mm. we, we sort of follow the old traditional route of the or, uh, of the Orient Express train. You know, the Orient Express mm-hmm. mystery mm-hmm. movies and books, etc. Well, the Orient Express was a real train, and we thought, I thought, well, rather than do something as challenging as Silk Road, the second, let's let's try doing this European one. It should be easy. Um, and so what, that was the second one, and then the next one was a Silk Road uh, two years later. And then every year or two, we would add another um, uh, adventure. Um, the, the next one was... Uh, would be at that time called the um, well South American Epic, which is different than what they want to be have right now. Um, and it, we, we just kept adding. And, uh, at this point, I think if you go on our website, you'll see well, at least a dozen different trips. Uh, some of them, some of them are super epics, very long trip, like the South South African uh, South American trip right now is from Cartagena in Colombia all the way to the. the the bottom tip of of South America, Ushuaia, Argentina. You know, that's a mm. five and a half month trip, five and a half month on a bicycle. Um, we now have another great one that starts uh, on top of Canada and goes all the way to Panama City. Oh wow! Uh, that's a North American epic. Um, we have something called Trans Europa. We have uh, a trip in Far East called Bamboo Bamboo Route. Um, and we have shorter trips um, that we do as well right now. Um, so and they're all different in a, in not different, but we have we have sort of divided 
Um, I did our our trips into four different categories. Uh, the, the real big one, challenging expeditions, are our expeditions. Then we have something called adventure, which is more like the bamboo route in Southeast Asia. Then we have uh, what we call more touring type, which is the European trips and some other ones. Um, and now we started uh, experimenting with doing a supported bike packing, we call it. Oh, yeah. Which is not really supported in a true sense, but it, it just gives people people an opportunity to try bike packing with some support. It's essentially based on what I, you know, when I set up the Tour de Afrique, it was the assumption that, that many people, most people will will never go on a trip across Africa if they don't have some support. It's just too much of a challenge. And, and you know, there are people who always cycle. 150 years ago, people went on a bicycle around the world. Mm-hmm. But those are unique individuals. The majority of people would love to go to Africa or anywhere else around the world, but they won't go by themselves. A variety of reasons. Maybe they're older now. Maybe they need some, you know, they don't have the confidence uh, uh, for emergencies. Uh, maybe they're worried about crossing borders, etc. So uh, the the idea was that we we create a support, um, and different trips have different types of support. Um, so the same concept we are looking into bikepacking. You know, a lot of young people go on bikepacking, and mm-hmm. they don't need any help. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of the elite, the top of the pyramid. You know, the, uh, they can do things by themselves. But most of us are not, you know. We are not elite athletes. <laughs> we are not elite adventurers. Or you don't want to be. You're, you're just like, I want to go enjoy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, I'm. so we are experimenting with this bikepacking now to see, to find a formula that works. So again, people like myself, I'm 69. I still love to go bikepacking. But by going by myself or even finding a friend at my age to go, it's just essentially a no-go. Yeah. But if I can find six, seven, eight people um, and that want to go into, you know, on a, on a bikepacking trip and, and uh, support each other and help and have maybe a guide who can show us show us how to do things better and easier and so on. And certainly when we get hurt or something, then they can help us. Um, so this is the sort of thing that we're looking at right now. Yeah, and what better way to do it than, like you said, to have, you know, 8 to 10 or whatever uh, like-minded people, you know, even though they maybe found this on a website or via some sort of word of mouth, but yet they have the same mindset versus, you know, trying to get your spouse or a friend who maybe doesn't bike and probably will not enjoy it as much as you. So I think that's pretty cool. I also noticed on the website, you know, when you say the word support, it can mean so many different things. So if people want to, like you mentioned, bikepacking, where they bring all their stuff on their own bike versus maybe somebody who wants to stay in a hotel or have an actual bed or, you know, have uh, food prepared for them. Like you, you offer such a great variety. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, um, I, I, you know, I always look at myself as an example. I don't mind being pampered once in a while, you know, (laughs) right. And and but at the same time, I really enjoy the challenge of doing something difficult and challenging. And and uh, so we have a cross section. Um, as I said, the uh, expedition are the most challenging ones. The touring are get much more support. We stay in nice uh, nice hotels. Mm-hmm. The places we go to are not necessarily very challenging in the sense of when I compare it to some of the African countries um, or, or even some of the Asian countries we go to. You know, that's that's the kind of variety we offer. 
A quick interruption to give a shout out to Primal Wear. Cycling is their passion and apparel is their craft. So if you are in the market for a New Jersey, bibs, mask, or any cycling apparel, go to primalwear.com and use code PRIMALMURF to get 20% off your purchase. Yes, 20%. Now back to the show. Okay, so I want to switch topics real quick here, but I can't believe that, you know, you are still sitting here talking to me because there was a point in your life when you were out on your bicycle and you happened upon an angry elephant. And I'm talking about a a real elephant. And you almost lost your life, right? Uh, Yes. Well, you know, there's an irony in all of this because uh, for years we were doing this uh, trips in Africa and Silk Route and South America you know, we all have these preconceived notions. And the number one question always was, is it safe? Is mm-hmm. it safe? Is it safe? Um, and usually when people mean is it safe, you know, they worry about things like, uh, well, like wild animals and like uh, <clears throat> being killed by terrorists and so on. And I would always tell them, don't worry. Don't worry about snakes. Don't worry about the wild animals. Don't worry about any of it. Don't worry about terrorists. Don't worry about wars. Don't worry about anything. The only thing you have to worry about is crazy drivers. Mm. Traffic. And I would look at it. I would almost. I wrote blogs about it. I said, you know, just just uh, statistically, I'm an engineer. You know, I, I I look at things. I try to see the reality of it. And the rea- reality of it that your chances of being hurt or killed by any of those other things compared to being killed by a car are huge, mm-hmm. you know, it's huge, there's no comparison, yet we all seem to accept that the car could kill us, but, you know, but we worry about the snake. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, um, I, so I go back, I say it was ironic that what happened to me then, I was the one who were actually, literally, from all these years of, of we went through, the only real um, animal um, attack, if you will, and an injury was caused to me by 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 an elephant, and it was totally innocent. You know, I was on a bicycle in uh, in southern India between two national parks. Uh, we had a trip there. I was the sweet. Um, there was one rider. She was American. I we just started the day. We were, I think, about five or six miles into the ride. She, me and her were behind because she was having a our style of cycling. Is everybody goes in their own pace and mm-hmm. you get up you have your breakfast and you go so some go right away some can by get up some are slow like me uh, some go to the toilet for a few minutes and so on but anyway she was having a problem with a bicycle so um i i was hanging back with, with her and then we got going eventually about five six miles into the ride from a very lovely lodge we were staying and going through a forest uh we're going uphill and in front of her but oh, i don't know 50, 100 yards in front of her, I saw a, a mother elephant with two young ones crossing the road mm. all of a sudden. And, and she was with me in Africa years before. And, and we go through a section in Africa, which we call elephant highways, because there's a lot of elephants there. And everybody saw an elephant except her. And so as I saw the elephant in front, I said, wow, what an irony. What, what yeah, a nice you thing. get to she, see it. Not enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> she, she gets to see the elephant, and she has never seen him in Africa. And we kept both, you know, the elephants were peaceful, you know, they crossed very peacefully, and she kept going ahead of me, and I, I, I was going after her slowly. 
in my mind, I was sort of looking to the left for the elephant, went into the forest, wondering if I can catch a glimpse of the elephant. And as, as I, as, you know, whatever it took that, that hundred yards or so cycling up the hill. When I got to the point, I said, well, I don't see anything. I must have already passed them or the, right, the, or, or the elephants already deep in the, elephant, mm-hmm. in, in the forest. And as I, as that thought crossed me, all of a sudden, this full speed just broke through the trees, the elephant charging me. Um, going at me, uh, and you know when they run, they run the steel horse. Mm. Uh, so I, I I made a very quick decision that the only way I can get away was was trying to turn around and go downhill. I tried to do that, but it was a kind of a one lane paved road. But but the shoulder was like oh at least six inches from from uh, the pavement. So I, I had to try to make a very narrow um, turn. Um, it didn't work. I fell. Which point, uh, you know, my brain and suggested very quickly try to get into the forest and try to zigzag right. in the trees. Um, so I made a very quick choice. You know, you don't have this. You know, your mind takes over very quickly, and the choice was uh, to run all, uh, slightly uh, in the direction where the elephant was coming, but not right at the elephant, but you know, about 45 degrees. So the elephant would have to make a sharp turn. And and that was slower and gives me a time to sort of get into the forest and zigzag. So this part actually worked. I managed to get into the forest, and I heard the elephant actually stop stepping on a on a bicycle, um, crashing the bicycle. And then I was uh, already making another zigzag turn when I when I felt uh, something grabbing me by the ankle, which was oh. the trunk of the elephant, and I was in the air. So the next thought is I was, as I fell to the ground, I was trying to pull myself into fetal position, trying to, to limit the space the elephant had. This is, you know, the Canadians, we get trained about <laughs> how to deal with, with bears. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that was the thought. And the next thought, the next thing I, I that happened was that I, I heard the helmet cracking from the force oh, of the elephant's foot on my on my head. Um, and at which point, interesting enough, my mind, the thought that crossed my mind simply was like, this is very interesting what happens next. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, there was there was an uh, amazing calm, actually. I, I, to this day, I, I just don't know how it happened. It was tremendous calm that there was no acceptance, maybe. Just, this is it. This is the way it goes. And, and um, yeah, what happens next? And then I I either lost consciousness or um, or the, the the brain basically deleted the next, whatever time it took. But uh, when I, the, the next realization was I was now flat on my back and the elephant was already uh, disappearing in the forest. Mm. He was running away from me. Just, I, I think it was she because of the elephant, but it could have been a male who was just Apparently, that's traditional that the male always watches the family. So it could have been a male who watched the female with the young ones. I, I just trying to figure out what to do next because I was convinced I had a broken leg uh, somehow. And in turn, I did have a bunch of broken bones, um, and I was in, in, a, in a serious situation, serious condition. Mm-hmm. But as to what you know, how many times she stepped on me? Obviously, she stepped on uh, beside my helmet. Um, she stepped on other parts of my body because I, I, my my arm was completely disfigured. Um, and I had a broken bone sticking from <clears throat> my upper arm. Wow. I had shoulder broken. I had 
uh, my wrist was broken in two places. I had a crack lower back. Um, I had an orbital bone crack. You know, there were a bunch of injuries. Um, my ribs were cracked. So she either twisted me around. She definitely stepped on me at least once. Um, but maybe the helmet cracking basically thought, well, she basically thought maybe that was it. And <laughs> I was done. So <laughs> she abandoned me. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm very fortunate, yes. literally very fortunate. that I And I had more or less a full recovery. Fortunately for me, I never suffered any PTSD as well. Perhaps because I was willing to talk about it right away. I wrote a blog about it. That, you know, the whole idea where I mentioned that for years I tell everybody not to worry about wild, uh, wild elephant and here, ironically, yeah, but wild animals and here, ironically, here's a person. I said, this is the blog is going to be written about things you never should worry about on this trip. And uh, and the, the blog was written four or five days. I was still in bed in, in the hospital, mm. writing with my finger. But um, yeah, very extremely fortunate. Yeah, and it's it's nice to be able to tell that story and know that, yes, you got back on a bicycle and you've probably seen an elephant since then? Oh, I tested myself right away. Not right away, but uh, that summer um, I was still in my... I didn't heal right away. You know, I had to have another... I had an operation in the, uh, the same evening, but I didn't have to have another operation a year later. In Canada, um, so um, the recovery was much much longer than originally expected. But what I do recall, I um, in the, I have two nieces in Washington D.C. and I, I went to visit them um, with my sister and the family there too. And and the older niece, for some reason, decided to take me to a to a zoo in Washington. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and, and and of course, she decided to. To take me in front of the elephant. So that was the first time I saw. But since then, I have seen them uh, literally in the wilderness. And um, you know, I was suddenly have an awareness of, of elephants, and I, 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 I was curious to see how I would react. So um, I, I, you know, I was fine. I was calm, and I, I, I mean, I was. Aware. I mean, it makes you aware when you look at those elephants. I mean, I was on a safari in, in. In Tanzania, we're in a vehicle, of course, but uh, the elephant was like six feet away from me, looking at me. And I kept thinking, you know, is there a way to communicate with each other? <laughs> yeah, already, yeah, it's already been because done. You don't have to come you, get me. <laughs> because we were looking at it with such intensity, and I was just wondering, well, this is interesting. Oh, um, wow. I did recall a, I did recall an interesting story. Um, I don't know if you want to hear this about Warren Munderpost. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's uh-uh. a South African writer who grew up um, in a, in a, near the Kalahari Desert. And as a young man, he was a bit of a hunter. And, and he tells a story how he killed a, a lion in South Africa. But years later, he was in London in a zoo. And uh, when he walked by the cage of a lion, he said, all of a sudden, the lion just just got very intense and angry and literally jumped at the fence. And he wrote, you know, he wrote about it. Uh, well, is there a, some sort of a subliminal communication? Right. And 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 that that kind of a thought crossed my mind when Elton was looking at me with such intensity. But anyways, I said I I was in the car, so I wasn't panicking. I was <laughs> sort of on the top. You know how you go on a safari, you stand and you watch. Yeah. So we were. I mean, I mean, he could have reached me with his uh, trunk if he wanted, but 
Yeah, fortunately, no PTSD. Uh, and I think part of the reason is because I was willing to write about it and talk about it right away. I, I am a strong believer. I had a mom who survived three years of concentration camps, and she talked about it even in my childhood. And I think one of the reasons she was able to live a normal life because she was willing to share the horrible stories. Oh, man. A quick interruption to tell you this week's podcast is sponsored by Lizard Lips Lip Balm. These great lip balms contain natural ingredients, come in a variety of flavors, and you can choose certified organic or balms with sun protection. Check it out at lizardlips.net. Now back to the show. Are there any like cycling expeditions that are really memorable to you that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I think every trip is memorable for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um and and um, you know you get different things out of them. Um, I, as I said before in the beginning, every time I go on a bicycle, I, I you know it's a joy for me. Yeah, you know, doing any any first crossing of a of a country or a continent is always very very memorable. Of course, yeah, yeah, you know, the African trip is is the most memorable. Because it's you know it's like your first love. You know, yeah. forget that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, the more challenging the trips, the more memorable they are. You know, again, I had written blogs about stretching yourself and, and seek discomfort. And because, you know, you most learn when you are challenged. Whether, mm-hmm. you know, a year and a half ago, um, I, I, for the first time, we had a trip in the Himalayas from uh, Kashmir to Kathmandu. Um, and um, and it's sort of, uh, you know, we call it the Trans-Himalaya, even though it's not necessarily crossing Himalaya, but it does cross, it does go, go on several occasions, we go through elevation, which is over 5,000 meters, which I believe is, what, 16, 17,000 feet. And, you know, when I was doing this, before I did this, uh, first of all, I scouted it with an with a Indian fellow uh, who works with us, who's actually, he, he pitched the idea to us. And when I was in the car, um, I, I, I realized, well, how am I going to cycle this? You know, I'm going to be 67 years old. Um, how am I going to get to 5,000 meters up? I mean, <laughs> right. it's, it's, you know, it just sounds insane. Uh, but I said, you know, uh, I committed myself. I scouted it. I'm going to do this. And, you know, when I managed to do these days, when I managed to cross on a day on these difficult, challenging day, 5,000 meters plus on a bicycle, it was hell of a challenge, but boy, what a satisfaction, what joy afterwards, you know, what they did in a sense of both experiencing the, the high altitude of the mountains around you, but, but the challenge, the difficulty of breathing and keep going and not mm-hmm. giving up and saying, you know, I'm going to do this, no matter what, not this, I don't care about the snow and, 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 and the rain. And, and by the way, going to the top over 5,000 meters on one day, we had it all. We had sunny, you know, and it would change every 10 minutes. You yeah. had beautiful sun, and yeah. next thing you had a snowstorm, and the next thing you had... You know, you had ice falling on you and, and you name it. Um, and you just don't give up. You know, you, there's the vehicle you want to get into, although the vehicle has a hard time too because it's, the road is terrible. You know, they fall, the, the paved road falls apart very quickly mm-hmm. in this sort of situation. Um, so even though every year they do the repairs, it just falls apart. But, you know, so crossing trips like this or, or you know, going on a Silk Route, which is legendary, or the African Manos, South American places, I have always heard about and all mm-hmm. of a sudden being there on a bicycle mm-hmm. um you know it just it gives you such sense of satisfaction and 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 enriching you it's continuously enriching you because you learn continuously oh, sometimes yeah. from no people you don't expect to sometimes because of the book you pick up 
sometimes because of other people who are around you who are talking about it, who are much more knowledgeable about it and so on. And because you're searching, you're now in something and something doesn't make sense to you or you're trying to understand something or whatever, you know, South American history, for example, indigenous people, you know, all of a sudden subject, and they had very superficial interests and all of a sudden they become very interesting because mm-hmm. they are it's right in front of you. Yeah. And I agree with you on, you know, finding the most challenging um, adventures or expeditions you go on. We call that type two fun, where it's kind of miserable and you just think you can't do it while it's happening. But then, you know, in retrospect, you're like, all right, that was good. I did it. It was fun. I would recommend it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, as I said, I'm a convert. I, I, I write about this on our blog. If you search through my blog, you will find all kinds of issues about how to live well. It's essentially by, by pushing yourself a little bit extra by taking, you know, by doing it, you don't feel like it, yeah, you know, by yeah. by getting out in a, on a bicycle on a rainy day. And all of a sudden, I find a real joy when the water is coming down my face. <laughs> is it comfortable? Initially, definitely not. Right. Is it comfortable if, all, if I get wet, really soaking wet? No. But at the end of it, you know, you, 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 your body is stimulated. Your mind is stimulated by this kind of condition. Yeah, yeah. You know, lying on a beach is not stimulating. Unless you you ogle the people. True. Back to the original expedition. Does that still exist or a version of it still exist? Oh, yeah. No, it's an annual event. I said this past year we missed it because of the COVID, obviously. Sure. It's our most iconic trip and most well-known. You know, there's been several books now, uh, both by our writers, but even people have set up iconic trips you must do in your lifetime, whether it's a national, um, the Lonely Planet or other people have written. It's actually usually the number one trip um, that that is mentioned in the book. Oh, nice. Um, Yeah, it has become very iconic and a lot of people are dreaming about it. Um, So it does exist. We have have set it up for next year, next January. Um, There's already quite a few people signed up for it. So, yeah, it certainly exists. Most of our trip we try to do over and over again. The African one we do every year, and most of the other we do every second or even third year because mm-hmm. just the, the challenge of it and getting critical mass of participants um, to do it. So um, the South American epic, the North American epic, we now do every every three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the other trips we do every two years. So it just depends on on the number of participants. But we try to do all of those. The only one that we don't do is Indonesia mm. because um, no matter how wonderful the trip was, Indonesia doesn't seem to attract people. I don't get it. You know, as I said, it was one of my favorite trips, and yet um, maybe because it's too much climbing, hmm. lots of lots of very steep climbing. Yeah, well, that sounds uh, a little intimidating. That's a lot of, <laughs> yeah. those are a lot of kilometers. Yeah. What do you see um, on the horizon or the future for your company? You know, as we, uh, the you know, COVID still exists, but it seems to be um, getting to the point where we're getting a handle on it. So where do you see the future of your company? Well, I, I, I think we would like to keep on doing what we're doing and, and do more of it and get more people involved. Um, we have new trips, uh, for example, this this year coming up um, because of COVID particularly, but even before we had 
plans. Um, we have a southern USA trip, which is a little different than uh, than uh, most uh, trips. And then again, that's where we differ. Even if we do a trip, whether Europe or US or Canada, mm-hmm. we try to do a more difficult, more different route than a traditional, not necessarily the most direct route, but the, the, the one that we think has more highlights. So we have a trip coming up in September to, to southern mm-hmm. USA from um, from California to Georgia. From coast to coast, again, it's a little different than the typical U.S. trips. We have we we had the trip supposed plan for across Canada this year, but that's not going to work out because of COVID. So we have a trip on in the western part in British Columbia, and a, we call it beautiful British Columbia, and then we have a trip kissing the cod in the eastern part of Canada. And again, they are later in the year because by then I think most people will be vaccinated and. Border will be hopefully open and we'll be able to do it. In fact, people are registering for both of those trips already and the U.S. trip. We still have trips in U.S. and in uh, in Europe for this year. Whether they will happen, I don't know. But we do have one. Um, um, we have this Trans Europa trip, it's, which originally was supposed to start in St. Petersburg, but it's not going to be starting in Tallinn, Estonia. But we may not be able to do it. We may only end up doing part of it. We'll see how the COVID um, situation, and then we have other trips uh, also planned um, later in the year. We have a, an amazing trip called Patagonia Adventure. That's a wonderful, wonderful trip. That's ready in November. So again, by then we hope things are more or less doable. Um, we have other trips. Uh, it's, I don't know whether it's well doable. Again, wonderful trips in Turkey called Seven Wonders of, of um, Seven Wonders of Turkey. We have we have a trip in Madagascar, which I did a year and a half ago, which was also an amazing trip. Lovely five-week, six-week trip in Madagascar. Again, we don't know the situation for COVID. Mm-hmm. We do have a bamboo trip as well this year. Um, that's another one that, because it crosses many boundaries, it's questionable, I think, just because, you know, it's it's one thing to do, be able to do one country like U.S. or Canada, but if you start putting too many countries... Um, that's why Patagonia is doable because it's essentially Chile. But I don't know about uh, bamboo, whether that's going to be durable or not. So that's for this year. And for next year, well, you know, if things go to normal, we'll have the Tour de Afrique, we'll have the Silk Route, we have the South American Epic on the plan, North American Epic. We have we have a very large calendar for next year. Again, depends on how things evolve. Um, mm-hmm. So that's about, you know, the company has plenty of trips. There is no lack of ideas to do amazing trips. It always depends on the reality. Uh, you know, we are, what what we are very good, exceptionally good, as I may say. So, and in fact, that's what separates us from anybody else, is the is the ability to, to deal with new situations, with logistics, with crossing. Just like I was very lucky to get those permits across Africa. Um, you know, we have the skills and the experience how to do this about anything anywhere in the world. You know, the scope of our trip before COVID would cover more than 80 countries of cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are unafraid of coming to a new country, a new culture, a new language. Um, we have the ability. I sometimes joke around that we are really a logistical, logistic company that uh, happen to be cycling. Um, because our ability to go into new countries, new cultures, I don't think it's, it's, it's comparable to anybody out there. And the experience that we have accumulated, the contacts we have, the, just the, just the general knowledge and so on. So, I, you know, we keep doing that. If COVID 
forces us into different changes, well, we'll explore those. See what you mm-hmm. know, what what direction we will go. We don't plan to close down just because we're having too much fun. <laughs> right, right. Well, I was going to say you have all these adventures, and I'm assuming that you go on some of them still. Which, I mean, that's the perfect. Uh, oh, absolutely, I love being there. I I would go on three or four adventures every year if, if, if yeah. things work out. I, as I said, to me, it's extremely stimulating, and uh, and you know I'm aging, uh, but the best way to to deal with age is, is to continue to expose yourself and challenge yourself, and, yeah. and you know every. Every gerontologist will tell you that that's the way, you know, whether it's uh, learning a new language or going on a, on a great adventure or, you know, reading a book. Those are the way to deal with as you age. And, and um, you know, my mom passed away at the age of 91 plus and uh, mm-hmm. six weeks before she passed away, she, in fact, when I took her to emergency hospital, she was telling the doctor, I got to be out of here because I have a trip in six weeks. I got to go on. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and, and she booked her, you know, she booked her own trip. She she did all the arrangements. She had, I was, so I'll never forget that moment that she was going to the emergency and she was telling the doctor, you know, you gotta, I gotta be out of here very quickly because I have a trip to go to. So, oh my yeah, goodness! My mom is the model, and if I can do that, then uh, you know, that's yeah. the way to live your life. Well, it definitely sounds like you're already on the correct path to uh, duplicate that. Um, I don't know, you know, as I, just like the elephant, you never know what next thing it's going to bring you. Yeah, but, you're right. But, you know, again, the lesson from my mother, um, she lost her family, a huge tragedy, tragedy. Um, but at the end, the, you know, she, she always took advantage of what was offered to her. Uh, she had a right. very difficult life, but boy, oh boy, she knew how to take advantage of every minute when it was offered to her. And uh, oh, I think great. that's how we all have to look at it. You know, we just don't know. It's COVID yeah. or something else. We don't know. And as a result, you know, you, you, you take, you plan for what you can, you learn from what you can, and, and you know, and, and just just be positive and do it. Well said. That's a, that's a great way to uh, end this podcast interview. Um, do you want to tell the people your social media sites or your website one more time? Sure. So, you know, the company is called TDA, as in Tom, David uh, Atlas, globalcycling.com. We do have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. We have a YouTube page. Um, A lot of information. Even if you're not interested in us in general, but you're interested in doing your own trips, if you're willing to, you'll find every information you just about need on on going to places. So, yeah, and if you're interested in our trips, you can always call us, uh, phone number uh, 416-364-8255. Leave a message. We have a person who who gets back to you. Yeah, so um, any information you have or any suggestion, ideas, or thoughts, we always open. Um, I think in general we are quite quite an uh, open company. Um, we have uh, people who work for us in different countries. So again, uh, a lot of information available there. Excellent. Well, thank you, Henry, so much for coming on the show. And I look forward to keeping my eye on TDA Global Cycling. And, you know, of course, one of those trips are on my bucket list. So one of these years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it would be great, great to meet you in person. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, thanks, Henry. Okay. Bye-bye. 
Well, that's it for this week. A huge thank you to Henry for taking the time to talk about TD Global Cycling and his cycling adventures. Be sure to go to tdaglobalcycling.com. There is so much information, inspiration, and tour options available. And consider me available if you need someone to go on one of those tours with you. If you have a topic or the name of a cyclist you find interesting, email me at morphologypodcast at gmail.com. Please visit my Instagram page for daily entertainment and check out Morphology YouTube page to find videos of some of the places I go with my bike. I'll leave you with this quote from the unwritten book of Morphology, and this quote comes from today's guest, Henry Gold. The more challenging the trip, the more memorable it is. You learn the most when you are challenged. Think about it. Thank you.